All right, so we're in Genesis 1. We're going to be looking at Genesis 1, 26 through chapter 2, verse 8. So let's give our attention to God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray before we consider it further tonight. Heavenly Father, we stop for a minute to to pray, not because it's, it's just what you do before you preach, but we do it because we need to, because we need you to show up. We need you to work for us to hear you. Father, naturally you know our hearts are bent against you. And so we pray that you, would, that you would open our hearts so that we might believe and our ears so that we might hear because we want to hear from you. And Father, we need you to do that. And we trust that you will and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I can remember fairly vividly, it's starting to fade as I get older, right? Last week was my birthday and we talked about how old I am. But can remember fairly vividly one, a day from my senior year of college uh, senior year at Ole Miss, I was walking around campus with one of my best friends, and we decided to stop by our campus minister, our RUF campus minister's office, and drive him crazy. And so we were sitting there in his office, and the campus minister asked my friend, he said, you, you look like you've got something on your mind. What's, what's eating at you? And this is what he said. He said, do you ever have one of those days, or do you ever have those days where you wake up and you kind of look at your closet and you think, all right, who am I going to be today? Which person am I going to 
be today. And I can remember our campus minister's face sort of, sort of lit up and, you know, s- sensing this great opportunity. And he said, you know, yes, every day, right? And he said, you know, it's thrilling and it's sickening at the same time when you start asking those questions of identity, right? And I bet you can identify with that. You, you very well might have done the exact same thing. You stand in front of your closet and you think about your day and you think, which, which person am I going to be today? Right, you can probably identify with that question. It's sort of the age-old question. Who am I? Who am I really at the end of the day? So this semester, we're studying through the, the first half of the first book of the Bible. We're studying through Genesis. And we said last week, and we'll say every week, that Genesis is really like season one of all of life. Right? Uh, sort of like a TV show. If you try to jump in in the middle... You can kind of figure out what's going on, but the best way to really know what's going on and and, uh, understand that current context is to go back to the beginning and watch season one. And so that's what we're doing. If we want to understand ourselves and the world around us and understand God and what a relationship with him is like, then what a great place to start than in the beginning, right? Go back to Genesis. And so here we're really asking this this text sort of the fundamental question Uh, what's life all about? What's the purpose of life? What am I doing here? And so I want to look at that uh, really in two ways. We're going to sort of answer two questions, or we're going to try to. Basically, we're going to look and ask, what are we as human beings? What are we? And the second question, what do we do? What are we and what do we do? Now look, Those are obviously huge questions, and so we're going to only be able in a few minutes to talk in pretty broad strokes. But that's what I think this passage is, uh, at least in part, what this passage is teaching us. So let's take a look at it. So first, what are we? I think the fundamental, I think we can say that fundamentally, the answer to what, what what it means to be human is found right there in those first couple of verses, 26 and 27. And it's the basic idea that you and I, that everyone ever... That people are made in the image of God. We're made in his image and his likeness, which seem to mean exactly the same thing. There's a lot of debate about that, but you don't need to worry about it. Um, And now look, maybe that's a new concept to you. Maybe you've grown up in the church and kind of heard that forever. But it, it begs the question, all right, what does it mean that you and I are made in the image of God? Well, I think we can say this from reading the text. Right, last week we read about how God created everything else, heavens and the earth and animals and all that sort of stuff. Then when you get to the part where he talks about where he creates mankind, that it's different. Things change a little bit. It, it, it seems to slow down. It seems to, to sort of zone in on, on, on when he creates mankind. It really seems like everything else about creation and God creating is sort of driving to this point of God creating people. And that's really the case. Mankind, human beings, you and I, are the pinnacle of of everything that God's created. Notice that with everything else, God creates by His Word, just by saying it, right? God said, let there be light, and there was light. But when He creates man, you get the picture of Him saying that He's going to do it, but then you see Him working towards it, right? He takes the dust. And you get the picture of Him like, 
sort of intimately crafting people with his hands. And then his word doesn't just go out, right, and and accomplish what he wants it to, but his word goes out and it actually fills the person that he built, right? His very breath is what gives man, what gives Adam his very life. When he breathes into him, he comes alive. And of course, with nothing else in creation does God say, I have built this in my image. That's reserved for mankind. And the last thought is this, that with everything else, right, every other day he, he makes this and he says, it's good. And then he makes that and he says, it's good. And then he makes mankind and he says, this is very good. So what does that mean? In what sense are you and I like God? And here it is. I think we can sum it up like this. That to be in God's image means that you and I are spiritual beings. That God creates us with a soul. That we're physical and spiritual. Right? We're on a different level than anything else in creation. This is what sets us apart from the animals. We have the capacity to be rational, thinking, feeling, willing beings. We have the capacity for things like to be like God in things like justice and goodness and love and mercy, wisdom, holiness, those sorts of things. And because that's the case, it means that we can relate to God in a way in which nothing else in creation can. So to sum all that up, I think we could say this. That to be made in God's image means that we're designed to have a relationship with Him and to be like Him. That's what it means to be made in His image. We get hints of it when, it, when God says, let us make God in our, let us make man in our image, right? What's the, why, what's the us and the our all about? Well, it certainly seems to be pointing to the fact that God in Himself exists in a community, Right? He exists three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to be made in His image, we necessarily are relational, communal beings. We're going to talk about this more next week. Either next week or next. But fundamentally, we're made to be in relationship with Him. And to be like Him. Right? That's the, if you think about the what Jesus says is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So that means that the number one sort of identifying aspect of being human is a relationship with Him. That's where our humanity really is is fully realized. All right, so what does that mean for us? Let's try to apply that. What well, means if you want to begin to understand who you are as a person, and now look, this means whether you're currently a believer or not. This is for just all people, right? If you want to begin to understand yourself as a person, who am I? Then you have to understand that your relationship with God is the primary arena in which that takes place. In other words, fundamentally, who you are as a person is your relationship with God and what He says about you. In other words, He defines who you are. We're we're, we're built to understand ourselves by what God says about us. We're built to feel safe because God makes us safe. 
We're built to, we're built to feel loved because He loves us. We're supposed to understand ourselves by what He says, first and foremost, because He's the one that made us. And His opinion is the, is the ultimate, right? I'll give you uh, this illustration. Um, I heard a story about a lady named Barbara Lee, who was a congresswoman from California uh, in 2001. So right after the 9-11 attacks, um, Congress had to vote on whether or not to allow the president, uh, essentially allow the president to declare war by himself, or... Um, do as the Constitution says, which you know means Congress is the only one that can declare war. And so Congress has to vote on this, whether or not to put this in the president's hands. And everybody, you know, every, sort of everybody, all the Congress people are uh, pushing for unity. Right in this turbulent time, as Americans, we all need to be unified. But Barbara Lee wasn't sure. Because she just was really convicted that the Constitution, uh, you know, is. It has served us well, and it says that only Congress should do it. I don't feel comfortable doing that, and so she's in this dilemma. What is she going to do? Right? Because she wants to be a good American and a good, you know, whatever party she was with, and yet she wants to stand by the Constitution. And so she actually decides, after a lot of gut-wrenching you know, uh, uh, thought, she decides to vote against it. So the final vote was 420 to 1. She stood as the lone dissenting vote. She got over 60,000 pieces of hate mail after this. People calling her a terrorist. People, you know, you're not a patriot. Just everything you can imagine. She just got blasted. And so in the interview, they asked her, how did that, how did you handle that? How did that phase you and she said to be honest it you know on on one level it did but but really it, it didn't she said because she said I called my dad that day she said I called my dad but if you're new to RUF I cry all the time right and I'm gonna cry at least at least one more time in this last illustration but so don't worry about it we're fine She said, I called my dad and told him what I was going to do. And so, what do you think? And he said, baby, I'm proud of you. And she said, that trumped everyone else. It doesn't matter what anybody else in in the world says. Because her daddy's proud of her. That was, so you get the point. That's fundamentally, she defined herself fundamentally by what her dad said. And nothing else mattered. That's for her what grounded her. That's how she knew who she was in that sense, right? The same is still true. She needs to know God, right? It's an illustration. But that's what we're built for. We'll, we're built to find our identity, who we fundamentally are in our relationship with God. Now we're going to circle back around to this at the end. Second, or sort of an extension of that thought. I think that, that this concept actually helps us probably begin to understand why we tend to, why you might be feeling miserable right now. Right? Because if, if the fundamental place that I'm supposed to find my identity is in my relationship with God, that means that it's not in other places, right? 
But we tend to listen to every other voice in the world, right? As we try to figure out who we are in life, fundamentally, who am I? We, we, we've got lots of competing voices, and we tend to listen to, to anything else. We tend to listen to what our grades want to tell us. Right? Your grades will tell you, or will try to tell you who you are. You're average, or you're awesome, or you're a failure, right? Your boyfriend or girlfriend, or how that relationship's going, will try to tell you who you are, how popular you are, how much money you have, right? Fill in the blank. Anything can do it. But if we're built by God, then when we begin to listen to those voices to find our fundamental identity, we're not going to meet anything but dysfunction, right? Because those things can't define us. They can't give us ultimate definition. It's only going to bring dysfunction and destruction, right? I don't know if this is helpful, but maybe you could think about it like a guitar, right? You could look at a guitar and you could try to define it, right? If you don't know what it is, and you could say, all right, it's got a long handle, it's got a flat backside, it's not that heavy, I bet I could smash bugs with it. I bet I could swat flies with it. And you know what? You could. You'd probably kill a fly with that. But what's it going to do? It, you're going to bring destruction, right? You get the idea. Oh. We're prone to define ourselves by all sorts of other things. One other quick application of this, sort of in a different direction, that to be built in the image of God means that people, everyone, has inherent dignity. That in some sense, every person you've ever seen has infinite worth. Right? C.S. Lewis's famous quote in the, uh, the Weight of Glory, which I don't actually have the quote, but you might be familiar with it, where he basically says, look, every person you have ever known is a creature that if you could see them now, how they're going to look one day, right, in their eternal destiny, they would either be a creature so beautiful that if you saw them you would be tempted to worship them, or they would be a creature so horrific, you know, as, that you have never met in your worst nightmare. Because he says people will go on forever. So that means, and so he goes on to say, like, you, you don't sit next to some mere mortal. You sit next to an eternal being right now. So if, you're, if everyone is made in the image of God, it means that that person has infinite value and dignity. So that means we can't just toss people aside, which we're awesome at, right? I know I am. We tend to see people as obstacles. They get in our way in traffic, they get in our way in line, in class, and you know. But if this is true... We have to see people as incredibly valued, as bearing the image of God himself. It means that we need to move towards people of different race, of different culture, of different, of different anything, because they're valuable. They have things, they, have, they reflect God. And it also means, it also affects how you treat yourself. And some of, you know, we all need to hear both of these, but some of you need to hear this particularly. That it means that you have infinite dignity and worth in God's eyes. And that means, despite what the abuse that you suffered tells you, despite what that voice tells you, 
that you're not worth it. And you need to know, you need to hear that you were built in the image of God. And you, are, you have infinite value. Alright, so that's who we are, very broadly. What do we do? We have to move quickly. We're built in the image of God, so, so what do we do? Alright, so being the idea of image to the original readers of this text would have meant something fairly specific. Um, you know, Moses wrote this, so it's for the uh, Israelites after they've been brought out of Egypt. Um, the, the concept of image was what a king would do. He would set up images uh, in areas of his kingdom in which he could not be present. Right? It would be an image of himself. So right, he conquers this land, but he's going to live over here, so he sets up images over there. Right? Sort of representations of himself to show this is who rules here. And so that's what's at work here also in this passage. That we are the image of God. That we reflect who God is and what He does. To show that as we live and operate on this earth, that we're we're God's image. He rules here too. We represent His reign as King. So what does the King do? We talked about it last week, right? He creates He brings things into order. He brings beauty and life and light. Notice the things that Adam does in the passage. 128, God says to be fruitful, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. 215, work and keep the garden. In 220, we didn't read, Adam gives names to all the animals. God built us to do things, to create, to bring order and, and beauty to this world to figure out what the world can do to mine its resources so what does that look like for us a few applications real quick well first it means that you need to do something right that you're called not just called but you're built to be productive to be fruitful to do things right and to do things ultimately on behalf of the king So have you ever even thought about how might you use the talents that you have to better this world? Ultimately, to further the kingdom of God. Sort of the second idea, it brings great dignity and purpose to whatever it is you do. Right? Because it means that there's no menial task. Because what you do, you do on behalf of the king, the creator of everything. There's no such thing as a small task, right? So that means that right now you're called to be a student at least. So your studies actually are, you can study to the glory of God. Being a student to the glory of God doesn't just mean that you, uh, you tell folks about Jesus while you're here. But your studies in and up, we're, actually I'm jumping the gun here. But. So that means that you're not just, your identity is not, you're just not a doctor to be. Right, you're sort of on probation and then like God will use you in his kingdom when you're, you know, thank you very much, you've graduated. No. You, your occupation, so to speak, is student. And you can honor God in that. The work itself is good and worshipful. Another application or sort of extension of that. Um, that's what I was getting at earlier. That, that the actual work itself is God honoring. That whatever way you bring beauty and order to this world is good. 
um, to be, what it means to be a Christian accountant doesn't mean that you sh- doesn't just mean that you share your faith with your coworkers and you put Bible verses up in your cubicle. That you're actually taking those numbers that are chaotic and nobody else understands, but you do, and bringing them into order and putting them the way they're supposed to be and making sense of that. That that in and of itself pleases God. Whatever it is you do. So it means that doing a good job, right? If you're a banker, this might shock you, but it means that making money is honoring to God. That's how you fulfill, that's a big part of how you fulfill your calling. Make money and make it well, right? As you do it unto the Lord, do it honestly and faithfully, those sorts of things, of course. And last thought, it, it doesn't just pertain to your job. It stretches into every single area of your life. Right? It's not just at work that you can honor God, but it's in every little thing that we do. What if we really began to think about our lives like that? That what I am built to do, everything I'm built to do, I do it right in front of the face of God, and it can make Him happy. That He's called me to do the million little things. Look, wash these dishes tonight. He's called me to help bring in the speakers at RUF. Whatever it is, right? Just the little things that you do. What if my kids... What if I began to think like that, really? And what if my kids could actually detect a little bit that I looked at giving them a bath, that I didn't look at giving them a bath as... One more thing we got to do to get you in bed so that I can do what I really want to do, which is nothing. Sit on the couch and watch TV so I can have illustrations for RUF. What if they could, what if they could taste? Or, or maybe what if they could smell the fact that, that I looked at giving them a bath, which is the hardest, you, it's getting better, but this is the, the hardest thing in the world to me. What if I looked at that as a task that the king of the universe had given me and not anybody else. That I'm the one that's given these kids a bath. It's no big deal, but it's a huge deal, right? You see the beauty in it. All right. So we've talked very broadly and very quickly about who we are and what we do, what we're called to do. So let's wind this up. Because if you're, maybe if you're tracking, you might be thinking that there's somewhat of a problem. Because, so if you and me and everybody else are made in God's image, then does that mean, in some ways I don't really mean this funny at all, does that mean that God is ugly? Because, quite frankly, people can be horrible. I know I can be. And you know you can be. So we're showing a terrible reflection of God to the world. So how, how do we think about that? Well, you, maybe you've heard the illustration of the fact that we're, we're sort of like mirrors, right? We, we, we reflect what God, who God is and what he's like. But because of our sin, because we're fallen, because we don't work right, we're like a shattered mirror, right? So if you stood in front of a sh- shattered mirror... You could probably tell, like, okay, that, it's a person, right? I, it's a, yeah. 
but you couldn't tell much about it, right? The image is all marred and distorted. That's what we're like. But get this. The concept of image pops up a few times in the New Testament. The same idea. And one of the places is Colossians 1.15, and it's about Jesus. And Paul says that Jesus, get this, right? he's talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You hear that? That Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. So we've all failed at being good images of God. But Paul in the New Testament says that God himself has come, in a sense, to be his own image. But then he goes on to say, in just a few verses later, listen to this. Or let me say this. So that means that we can look at Jesus. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. Right? Look at his perfect image. So what do we see? Well, here's what Paul says just a few verses later. He's talking about Jesus as the perfect image of God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. You see what that's saying? All right, what is God like? What should his image look like? What's supposed to look like Jesus? So we look at Jesus and what do we see? We see... We see that God comes, comes to this earth and the person and, work in Jesus, of Je- person and work of Jesus and he basically says, you're a terrible image of me, but I love you. And I'm going to be the image that you should be for you. I'm going to do it in your place. I'm going to take my image and I'm going to stamp it on you for free. And I'm going to take all the ways that you have marred my image and I'm going to take that on myself on the cross. And I'm going to bear all the wrath and all the, the, all the punishment for that. I'm going to take that and you're going to take this. And I'm going to give it to you for free. He's our image for us. And so since that's true, that means that what God offers and accomplishes for us in the gospel is that whatever's true of, the, of Jesus is the image is now true of us. And what does God think about his own image? How much does he, how much does he love his own image? Right? Think about when Jesus is baptized. As he comes out of the water, what does God say about his own image, about his son? He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Right, so do you, do you see the beauty of the gospel that God is offering and accomplishing for that to be true of you and me? That God's opinion of you is that you are, you are my beloved son and I am really, really happy with you. I'm going to end with this. Hopefully. And by, we're going to end. I just mean I hope I can get through it. Quick thought. Illustration. Shoot. 
So the other day, I was in the kitchen. We got three kids. Youngest is a little girl. She's two and a half. Cutest thing you've ever seen, in my opinion, right? And walking through the kitchen, she's sitting there on the stool. And I looked at her and I said, Lucy, I love you. And I think you're beautiful. She's two and a half. I'm not even sure she, like, she really knows what that means. But at the same time, she knows exactly what that means. And if you could have seen her light up, it was amazing. The biggest smile you can imagine. Cheeks get red. Right, she's two and a half. I don't even know really how she knows to do that. But that's kind of the point. She's built for that. She's built to have somebody look at her and say, you are beautiful. Because we're all built like that. And that's just a little taste. Even though it feels like that one might be, to me in a sense, it feels like that one's actually bigger than the truth. But it's not. That's just a little taste of what Jesus offers us in the gospel. That he looks at us as messed up as we are, and he says, you, you're beautiful because you're mine. That's the good news. Hope you take it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, what a beautiful truth. We pray that that truth would, uh, would change all of our hearts. Uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.